Well, good morning and happy Sabbath. Um, really glad that you could join us for our Saturday morning um, live stream. Um, it's been a really interesting week as uh, restrictions are easing and there's uh, more and more of a sense of freedom and uh, more and more of a sense of hope. Uh, it's been a really encouraging time to just kind of uh, regather our lives and, and to kind of move forward. And um, yeah, I, I hope that your, your week has um, been a good one. <clears throat> So we're going through a series entitled um, A Tale of Three Kings, and uh, we've talked about, uh, last time, I think three weeks ago, we talked about the story of Saul, and this week we're going to be talking about the story of David finding a place in God's heart. And I suppose this story is kind of a unique one because we're kind of um, seeing a transition of monarchy from one king to another, and in some way it kind of matches what's going on in the U.S. I don't know if you've watched the news or if you've followed the whole uh, Trump-Biden saga of fraudulent votes and uh, court cases and all sorts of, um, I guess, legalities surrounding um, the, um, the voting that's happened over the last, uh, the voting that happened on no- November 3rd. Um, but yeah, this story kind of reminds me of transitions and uh, just the, the, the politics and the complexities that come with transitions of power. So last time we explored the story of Saul and how his mistakes led him to lose uh, the throne. Uh, we explored a couple of scenes from the life of uh, Saul, uh, the first king of Israel. And uh, just by review, um, the first scene that we looked at uh, was the scene of Saul waiting for the prophet Samuel uh, to receive a blessing to go into battle. And the the custom was that um, the king was supposed to wait for the prophet to offer the sacrifice and hear a response um, from God to have the green light to attack his enemies. And Saul does not wait, and he offers a sacrifice himself, and God responds to this um And he says, basically, the kingdom is going to be taken away from your bloodline. Now, God wanted Saul and Israel to know that it wasn't okay to go to war without consent. Now, the next scene that we look at from Saul's life is um, when Saul was commanded to attack the Amalekites. And his task is to not leave anything alive, but to destroy everything. Uh, But Saul doesn't finish his task, and he leaves the king of the Amalekites alive, and he takes the best of the animals and brings them back to Israel with him. And um, as we read and learned, God's judgment on Saul was to take away the throne uh, in his lifetime. So... Uh, through these series of mistakes, we see that Saul isn't able to bounce back from his mistakes and he spirals into this cycle of negative behavior and, and negative thoughts. And he really isn't able to move past the judgment of God and experience the grace of God. He doesn't know how to cut his losses and just start over. And I, I suppose the sad thing about the story is that when you actually read through the book of First Samuel, you see that Saul still has so much going for him in his life, even though these uh, severe judgments have been placed on him. Um, Saul Saul still has loyal subjects. Um, He gains significant victories in battle, and he builds the kingdom of Israel. Uh, He has a legacy of being the first monarch of Israel. He has songs that are sung um, on behalf of his name. Uh, he, he, He has a family. And 
basically Saul has the ability to preserve all of this. He knows the throne is being taken away from him and he can technically step aside and abdicate his throne and basically say, David, you are the incoming king, you take charge. And and the transition would have been fairly smooth, especially since Saul's own heir, his son Jonathan, is quite happy to have David become king. But sadly, Saul tries to preserve the throne, and as a result, uh, he, he loses his life in battle, Jonathan dies at his side, and he, he, he loses everything. So now we move into the story of David, and David is this really famous character in uh, Israelite history. He's probably the most loved king in all of um, the Israelites' history. Uh, uh, yeah, Israelites' history. Um, and so David is this really famous, famous individual. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, uh, God chooses David to be king. And as we look at these verses, we're going to see different different things that David has going for him. Why does God call him to be king and what makes him such a capable leader? So in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. And this is in reference to David's older brother. Um, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so what's happening in this story is that uh, God instructs Samuel the prophet to go anoint a new king of Israel. And Samuel goes to David's home and he sees um, his older brothers kind of standing in line waiting to see if they're the next, they're going to be the next king. And God kind of speaks to Samuel. Oh, he doesn't kind of speak to Samuel. He does speak to Samuel and he kind of prompts him, um, showing him how Samuel shouldn't look on the outward appearance, um, but God is looking for something deeper in the heart. So in verses uh, 11 to 13, Samuel goes through all of the brothers, and he speaks to David's uh, dad, Jesse, and he asks, are all of your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in, and now he was ruddy, had beautiful eyes, and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel goes and anoints him. Now, uh, the way that this is written is a bit funny in that uh, when Samuel sees David's older brothers, God says, Don't look on the outward appearance, but... Um, you know, it's the heart that matters. And then David walks in and lo and behold, he's this beautiful, good looking person. And so, um, and, and he does end up actually being quite tall, tall later on. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, David is anointed to be king. And there's, there's this unique quality about his heart that God looks at it and says, you're, you're my, you're my guy. Now, David's ascent to the throne is a unique story in that, even though he's anointed to be the next king of Israel, it takes him years and years and years to actually realize that position. Uh, David has to wait an uncomfortable amount of time, uh, and instead of waiting around for the throne to become his, David gets as close to his final destination as he possibly can. If you look at First Samuel chapter 16, verse 18, David has this great reputation as a young man, and while Saul is still king, he gets recruited as the king's personal musician. And so while this 
committee gets formed to find a musician for the for the king one individual says behold i've seen a son of jesse the bethlehem uh, bethlehemite who is skillful in playing a man of valor a man of war prudent in speech and a man of good presence and the lord is with him so david gets called to be in the very court of Saul and he begins to spend significant time with Saul's family and he even wins the heart of Saul's sons and his daughters. Uh, If you look at chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, the first few verses, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. So David is known for his ability to fight in war, and he wins the hearts of the people. And as a result of his accomplishments on the battlefield, his fame tends to grow and grow and grow. Here's uh, the next few verses for Samuel chapter 18, verses 6 and 7. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the woman came out of the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And what ends up happening is that as you read the subsequent uh, or, or the next few verses, uh, you see that Saul becomes to he, he, he becomes afraid of David because he sees that God is with David and he senses this distance from the presence of God and he recognizes God has picked another individual. And so if you look at verses 15 and 16, uh, mainly verse 16, it says that all of Israel and Judah love David and he goes out and he comes in before them. Now, if I were David and I knew that I was going to be the next king of Israel, I would kind of want to put distance between myself and the current king because there's a reality that I am his competition. Um, I pose a threat to the king. And David does quite the opposite. He doesn't distance himself from the throne. He gets as close as he possibly can to the throne. He has all these great leadership qualities, um, and, and people just love him. And instead of, yeah, instead of placing distance, he just plays this political uh, political game david is incredibly sly um he doesn't shy away from playing the uh, playing politics and bureaucracy he gets right into it he's happy to move into the very home of his opponent uh, and rub shoulders with all the influential people and what ends up happening in the story is that over time saul gets so jealous of david uh, he re- repeatedly tries to take David's life. And after several attempts, David finally runs for his life and lives apart from Saul uh, till Saul's death. And and even as you read through the story of 1 Samuel or the end of 1 Samuel, um, it, it, it takes like three or four tries for Saul to try and kill David for David to realize, okay, this is a bad idea. I should move out. Uh, if I were David after the first try, I would, <laughs> I would say, okay, bye-bye, take care. Now, we keep reading about the um, events that lead to the ascension of David. In 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, it says that 
David departed from there, and he escapes to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him, and everyone who was in distress, and everyone who is in debt, and anyone who is bitter in soul gathered to him, and, be, and he became commander over them. And there were about 400 men. And as the story continues on, that number grows to about 600. So David is kind of the total package, and I've already mentioned that he has great leadership qualities. He's good-looking, he's charismatic, he's clever, he's tall, he's a warrior, uh, he's a politician, and above all else, God is impressed with his heart. And what we see here is that God chooses David for a specific reason. And though he has all these external great leadership traits, uh, the thing that God highlights the most is that he says, David is a man after my own heart. David is known as the author of the book of Psalms. Uh, when you read through the book of Psalms, there are 150 poems, songs, and prayers that David writes. You get a sense of the faith of David, and there's this incredible depth to uh, David's knowledge of God. Uh, when you look at Psalm 27, verses 1 to 4, uh, David is in this time of trouble, and he uh, the idea is that he writes this psalm while Saul is chasing after him and trying to take his life. Um, and David writes, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and uh, foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall uh, shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. So here's David in the midst of his trials, um, and the center of David's desire is still God. Even though his life is being threatened, the context of his life being threatened is God's will. And he's saying, God, even in the midst of my difficulty, I just want to dwell in your presence. I want to be in your house. I want to contribute to your purpose, to your will, to your plan. And in the context of that plan, David's trial, um, he is able to bear that burden and move forward in hope. Here's another example of David's heart. So in Psalm chapter 51, verses 10 to 13, this is David's response to his failure. And we're going to read about one of these uh, instances uh, where David commits murder and adultery. And uh, the context of this psalm is supposed to have been written uh, right after that event. So Psalm 51, verses 10 to 13, David writes, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. So here, after his own failures, instead of losing hope and living in fear and uh, just kind of entering into the similar a pattern of negative behavior that Saul went down, David gathers himself, asks for forgiveness, 
repents and commits to then making a difference in the lives of those who um, also uh, have made mistakes. So we start getting this picture of what David is like. And so there are two times in the Bible where God says that David is a man after his own heart. One time in 1 Samuel chapter 13, um, and then the second time is in Acts chapter 13. And the reason why I choose the New Testament reference is because this is written long after David's life uh, has passed. And the first time that God says David is a man after his own heart is prior to David's mistakes. So before David is even anointed to be king, Samuel refers to David and says, this is a man after God's own heart. But the reason why this reference in Acts is important is even after David's mistakes, God um, inspires the author of Acts to refer to David in the same way. And for me, that's even more significant because um, it's one thing to be considered someone who is after God's heart before all of your mistakes. It's another thing to be referred to a man after God's own heart after all of the mistakes. And so in reference to David, it says, And God gave them Saul. Uh, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king. Um, and he is referred to be a man after God's own heart. And really the end of that verse is the most important bit because it explains what it means to be someone who is after God's own heart. And that is someone who will do all of my will. And so David is considered... Um, as an individual who seeks God, who seeks God's will, God's purposes, and he's really committed himself um, to fulfill and to enact God's plan. And not just in his lifetime, but he recognizes that there is um, an everlasting or an eternal plan that God is um, trying to um I guess, make happen in the history of humanity. And so David commits himself to that, and we're going to see how that plays out at the end of David's life. So David is given this title, and he makes incredible contributions to God's plan for Israel. But we're going to find out just how flawed David is, and we're going to contrast the story of Saul to the story of David. So David makes mistakes. And uh, for those of you who are interested, uh, feel free to join us. Uh, oh, for those of you who have your Bibles and you're interested in following the story, um, I'll invite you to turn to First Cham, First uh, Samuel, chapter twenty-five. So, David, this story picks up. David has not yet ascended to the throne. He's fleeing for his life. Uh, he's in the he's in this uh, wilderness and. Uh, basically, they are very much at the uh, mercy of generous people around them, and they're at the mercy of whatever grows out in the wilderness. And so we pick up in this story where it's sheep shearing season, and David and his men have uh, acted as protectors of the flocks of a wealthy man by the name of Nabal. Now, there's an interesting twist in the story in that Nabal actually never asks David for protection. David and his men just kind of willfully, um, of their own volition, kind of watch over the flocks of Nabal. And uh, we pick up in verses 4 to 8. So 1 Samuel chapter 25, verses 4 to 8. 
David hears that Nabal is shearing his sheep, and it's, there's a special time in the season, and um, he sends ten of his young men to Nabal, and they say, "Peace and prosperity, uh, peace, peace and prosperity to you, your family, and everything you own." Um, I am told that it is sheep shearing time. While your shepherds stayed among us near Carmel, we never harmed them, and nothing was ever stolen from them. Ask your own men, and they will tell you this is true. So would you be kind to us, since we have come at a time of celebration? Please share any provisions you might have on hold with us and with your friend David. Now, I'm sure there's a cultural element um, here that I'm missing out on, but at face value when I read this, this doesn't sound great. It, it looks like David has become the mafia. And so when, when I kind of read the dialogue portion here, like all the, all the dialogue, um, enters my mind in a thick New York accent. Um, but, but if you think about this, David is kind of saying, please reward us for not stealing from you. And that's just, you know, if someone said that to me, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, my initial response is not gratitude. My, my initial response is an eye roll. <laughs> So what naturally happens is that Nabal rejects David's request and he responds quite rudely. Um, he says, why should I take food that is meant for my workers and give it to a band of outlaws? And David hears this. He gets really upset and he gathers 400 armed men and he heads towards, uh, he heads towards Nabal. And, um, oh, I just realized I didn't, I didn't give you guys the last part of verse 8. So there's the last part of verse 8. Apologies. So what ends up happening is David gets really upset. He takes 400 armed men and he marches towards the house of Nabal. And one of Nabal's servants witnesses the exchange between Nabal and David's men. And he goes and tells Nabal's wife, Abigail, what has happened. The Bible describes Abigail as this discerning um thoughtful, beautiful woman. And she quickly gathers a bunch of food and delivers it to David as he is marching towards her home. And if you keep reading in 1 Samuel chapter 25, when Abigail sees David, she quickly gets off her donkey and she bows low before him. And she, she kind of she says sorry in such an amazing way where she says, I, ex I accept blamed in this matter. Uh, please listen to what I have to say. My husband is ill-tempered and wicked. Please don't pay attention to him. And then she begins to switch her, uh, her language and she kind of talks about how great David is and how he is going to be the next king of Israel and how God is going to protect him. And she basically tries to calm David down. And David is absolutely smitten by this woman. And um, she says and does all the right things. And David recognizes that he's overreacting. And he basically repents and says, I'm so glad that I've been kept from this mistake because this would uh, tarnish my legacy. And so he gratefully accepts her gift and him and his men turn back around. Now, at the end of this chapter, uh, Nabal ends up dying and David then hears about this news and thinks, man, I remember Abigail of how wonderful she was. And he sends a message to her saying, uh, basically proposing to her saying, would you come out to where I am and would you marry me? Now, looking at the last couple verses in First Samuel chapter 25, um, so he marries Abigail 
Um, but then in quick summary, the Bible also adds that David marries uh, Ahinoam from Jezreel, and he makes both uh, Ahinoam and Abigail his wives. And in verse 44, Saul, meanwhile, had given his daughter uh, Michelle, David's wife, to a man named Galim. Um, and so even though Saul gives away um David's current wife, he marries two more wives. And my whole point of bringing this up is that David has three wives. And back in those days, polygamy was a normal thing. Um, and it's this, I, I guess it's sort of a loophole for God's people, uh, for the Ten Commandments where it says, uh, don't commit adultery. And I guess for, um, for a lot of the men, they kind of felt like, okay, well, the the law says that I shouldn't be with another man's partner, but what if the person is single? Then they can join the family, and then it's okay. And so there there are several stories in the Bible of polygamy, but here's where the problem lies. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, um, there's this there are these rules and regulations that the kings of Israel were supposed to follow, and David would have been quite familiar with these rules. So in verse 14, it says. Uh, you are about to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you. When you take it over and settle there, you may think we should select a king to rule over us like the other nations around us. And verse 17, the king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. And he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth in silver and gold for himself. So David knows he's not supposed to take multiple wives he knows I'm not supposed to accumulate great wealth. Uh, the position of king in Israel was supposed to be very different from the position of kings of the surrounding nations. Uh, and there are lots of other interesting rules uh, where the king isn't supposed to have a large army. He's not supposed to have chariots. He's supposed to read the law of God um, regularly, publicly. Um, and, and there's this, uh, there are these guidelines uh, that kind of reveal that leadership in Israel uh, is not about the leader, but it's about service. And what ends up happening is that David takes multiple wives, and later on he takes many concubines, and this decision becomes the root of much of the suffering in David's life. Um, not only, uh, oh, excuse me, yeah, this, this decision ends up being uh, the root of much suffering in, in his life. So David's inability to find satisfaction in a uh, in a single woman leads to um, kind of the falling apart of his kingdom in a way so when David becomes established as a king of Israel um, this problem comes back and so we go to the story of first Samuel or second Samuel chapter 11 so for those of you who want to follow and uh, follow the story in your Bibles I'll invite you to turn to second Samuel chapter 11. So the story goes, David has become established as king, and uh, he retires from his official duties in leading the army, and he stays home during the season of war. And as he stays home, he one evening he goes out and he looks uh, he, he spends time on his on his balcony and he looks over the king kingdom uh, he looks over his kingdom and he sees this beautiful woman named Bathsheba and she is bathing on her rooftop and he sends servants to inquire who is this woman and he finds out that she is the wife of one of his commanders Uriah 
the story goes that he seduces Bathsheba and afterwards he finds out that she's pregnant. And so this creates a problem because Bathsheba's husband Uriah is off fighting a war. And after the season of war, he would come back and find that his wife is pregnant and realize something has happened here. So David starts scheming and he sends word to his general and he says, call Uriah back home to see me. And so Uriah comes back home and David kind of um, speaks very kindly to him and says, I just want to reward you. Go and spend time. Be at home. Be with your wife. Be merry. Well, as we read the story in verses 8 to 11, Uriah doesn't go home. And in verse 9, it says that he slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. And when David hears that Uriah doesn't go home, he summons him and asks him, why didn't you go home? And if you look at verses 11, Uriah replies, the ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents. And Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. So David tries multiple times to try and get Uriah to go home and to be with his wife. And the problem is that Uriah is noble. He has an upstanding character and he refuses to rest and neglect his duty as an officer. So then David has to send Uriah back to his general with a message in hand. Put Uriah in the front lines. David sends Uriah to deliver his own death sentence. You think about how many layers of messed upness this whole situation is, and it's just bad. And this is a pivotal moment in David's life because up until this moment, David is talked about in a positive light. The author only speaks positively of David. But here there's a shift from positive to negative. And if you look at verses, uh, excuse me, Second Samuel chapter 12, verses 10 to, to 12, God sends the prophet Nathan to David to rebuke him. Uh, God wants David to know, you tried hiding what you were doing from everyone else, but I know what you did. Um, and what ends up happening in this story is that Uriah goes to the front line and he dies. And so this judgment comes to David. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says, because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all of Israel. David here has to come face to face with his mistake. You know, for a while, it seems like David gets away with polygamy. He, he, um, has this harem and it, it's, it's almost as if the rules don't apply to him. You know, David has so many strengths. He's charismatic. He's attractive. Um, he's, he has this personality that just draws people to himself. But ultimately, that strength turns into a weakness and he can't, he can't, he can't help himself. So 
in this judgment, notice it says that one in your own household is going to rebel against you in verse 11. David has a son named Absalom. And I guess if you as a father are good looking and you are gathering good looking women to yourself, naturally your children are also going to be good looking. And uh, the Bible says that Absalom is this incredibly good looking person who is just as charismatic and political as his dad. And in the story, Absalom wins the hearts of all of Israel and basically wants to, um, well, he, he, he starts this coup. And so he amasses this large enough, um, army that David has to flee from his own city and um, basically he loses his kingdom for a period of time. Uh, and as the story goes, uh, David has to regather his own military and um, he has to go to war with his own son. And at the end of that story, uh, his son uh, dies and David regains the throne. Now, when David hears this judgment, uh, oh, sorry, not only that, uh, there's that issue of David has his whole harem, and his son does this terrible thing where um, he he beds all of David's concubines in a public place. And so really the thing that, I guess David's vice really comes back to bite him, and that's that's really my whole point in bringing that up. Now, when David hears about this judgment uh, that comes from Nathan, um, he responds quite differently uh, from Saul, his predecessor. You know, Saul tries to avoid responsibility. Uh, the result of that is he kind of loses all hope and he, he, he just kind of becomes, he, he isn't ever to, he isn't able, he isn't ever able to just move on from his mistake. But in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, David hears Nathan's judgment. And in verse 13, David confesses, I have sinned against the Lord, and he takes responsibility. And Nathan's response is, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you, and you won't die from this sin. So I guess there are a couple things to take from this. One is um, that... God is always willing to forgive regardless of how terrible the sin is. And when I look at the story of David, what David does is kind of one of the worst things that you could do to somebody. Um, like steal their partner away from them and then, and then take that person's life like that. I don't know if there are very many things that are worse than that. Um, but yet David comes to God and he recognizes his mistake and God says, I forgive you. And when I look at David's mistake in contrast to Saul's mistake, I really think that David's mistake is worse. Um, but that's because I'm not able to see the story through the eyes of God. And, and when God looks at it, he's saying, Saul didn't have, he, he didn't care for me as God. Whereas David, even though in action he does worse, um, his heart is different. And so, yeah, it's really challenging to read through this story, and yet I think there's an important lesson to be learned here. Uh, another thing that's important uh, to, to take away from David's mistake is that even though David is a man after God's own heart, uh, he is not immune from the effects of his mistake. Yes, he is able to retain the throne. Yes, he doesn't die. But David suffers incredible loss. 
Like through this whole story, he loses multiple children. Um, and, and I highly encourage you to read th- uh, through the story of Second Samuel. But his children do terrible things to each other. His, his, his throne gets taken away from him in his lifetime and then he has to fight back and get it. Uh, and so when I look at the difference between what Saul had to face in his lifetime and what David had to face in his lifetime, Saul actually experiences a lot of, um, like his, his kingdom remains intact in his lifetime. And Saul actually experiences a lot more peace than David. And so David has the worst life, but he has a legacy. And that's really the difference. In the New Testament, Jesus is introduced. And in Matthew chapter 1, there's this whole um, explanation of the lineage of Jesus. And ultimately, Jesus comes from the family line of David. And this is really important in, um, in Scripture because David is held in an honorable position because of Jesus. And I guess the point that I want to bring out is that the one difference that David makes from Saul is he makes that commitment, God, I want to follow your will. I want to prioritize your plan, your ways, what you want. And as David enters into that relationship with his, uh, as, as David enters into that relationship with God, it then influences the rest of his life and it puts his mistakes into context. You know, when I was reading through the stories of Saul and David, I couldn't help but fixate on mistakes because that is my personality. Like, I don't know about you, but my mistakes, the mistakes of others, um, what could have happened but didn't happen because of what people didn't do bothers me so much. And so when I read these stories, I tended to hone in and fixate on, on these things. And I kind of thought, you know, Saul makes a mistake and it leads to his end. David makes a mistake, but it doesn't lead to his end. What was the difference? And ultimately it comes down to being committed to the will of God and saying, God, I commit myself to you. I want to have a relationship with you and I prioritize what you want. And for some reason in the context of that relationship, the effects that our mistakes have change dramatically. You know, I think Saul's mistake wasn't as bad as David's mistake. And yet, because David makes that commitment, um, it takes the bite, it takes the negativity out of David's mistake. And God says, I can still work with that. You know, when I think about my own life, um, you know, I distinctively remember there's a period of time in my life where I got a lot of speeding tickets. Those are mistakes. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I've had conversations with some of you and even some of my friends. It's like, why don't you just slow down? And for whatever reason, I, I've learned to slow down. But for whatever reason, um, it was just difficult. And, and, and you know, Jinha and I had to create this budget, especially for, for speeding tickets. <laughs> and... And 
I kind of thought, oh man, like this is slowing me down from my financial goals. This is slowing me down from uh, buying a house. This is slowing me down from so many things. Like all the other places that money could have gone if I, if I had just slowed down. Or when I think about, um, things in my professional, uh, things that have to do with my career as a pastor, it's like, oh, look at all these missed opportunities. If only I had done this, or if only I were, uh, better known or if only x y and z there are all these frustrations because i don't know what those mistakes will mean and i really like the story of david because um his mistakes his life is largely in a secular realm like he's not a priest he's a king and yet because of his relationship with god it puts those mistakes in context and his career is influenced by his mistakes. Um, his mistakes influence his family life. And, and so I guess I'm just trying to show the relevance here that when we are able to buy in, or not buy in, but commit to God's plan, to his purpose, to that relationship with him, God is saying, I can take care of those things as you prioritize myself. Psalm chapter 127, verses 1 and 2. In closing, it says, Unless the Lord builds a house, the work of the builders is wasted. Unless the Lord protects a city, guarding it with sentries will do no good. It is useless for you to work so hard from early morning until late at night, anxiously working for food to eat, for God's, for God gives rest to his loved ones. I really like this verse because it's a reminder to prioritize what God wants. And I guess, you know, if you look at this verse, it's a little bit, it's worded in the negative, right? Unless you build, uh, unless the Lord is already building this house, unless you uh, are committed to this same effort, then what we do comes to naught. But the flip side is when we are committed to building God's house, when we are committed to following what God wants, then what can take it down? And I guess I bring this up because I want to invite you to think about your goals, your purposes, your dreams, um, your motivations. And my question to you is, is God working in that space? Is God a part of your plan or are you a part of God's plan? You know, when we are a part of God's plan, regardless of our deficiency regardless of what we are not able to do, those are areas that God can say, I can do those things. I can take care of those things. I can watch over your mistakes. And the anxiety and the fear that comes from um, all the bad and negativity that can happen, God is saying, you leave that to me as you move forward in my will for you. And so it's my prayer that as you consider what it means to be... Um, to have the heart of God, to, to pursue the heart of God. Uh, may you experience the peace and the fruit that comes as a result of that. May God bless you. Father God, as we consider what it means to be people, uh, what it means to be a people that are after your own heart, I just want to pray that um, yeah, you would teach us to be able to move past the fear and the anxiety of, of, of what it means to live in this world, uh, whether or not we are faced with our own mistakes or the mistakes of others. And I just want to pray that as we commit ourselves to building your house, um, 
and to, to engage in your work that you would give us that renewed sense of hope and resilience. We pray these things in your name. Amen.